If you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 6. There's one within arm's reach wherever you're sitting. You can find Matthew 6 on page 811. We're going to spend our time there. And in Philippians chapter 4 in a mi- couple minutes. Uh, there was a song that was on repeat in our house like over and over and over again, especially during the days of the pandemic. It's a song about nostalgia and missing the moments that are so easy to take for granted. It's a song called The Good Old Days. It's by Macklemore. A part of the song goes like this. I wish somebody would have told me someday these will be the good old days. You don't know what you've got till it goes, till it's gone. Because someday soon your whole life's gonna change and you'll miss the magic of these good old days. There's something about the human heart that is so restless. You know, when uh, you're young, you can't wait to grow up. When you're old, you can't wait, or you wish that you were much younger. If you're a parent, you can't wait until your kids are just a little more independent. And then when they are, you miss the days when they were a little more dependent upon you. Uh, If you've made a decision, one that looked like it was going to be really good at the beginning, and then later you look back, and there are all these things you didn't see. It's why I love the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 4. You heard him just a couple of moments ago. He says that I learned to be content not just sometimes, not just when things are going well, but in any and every situation. I love the NIV translation. It says, I've learned the secret of being content. Because so often the grass is always greener on the other side. There's something about the human heart that is so restless. How can you have peace in the present. When today has enough trouble of its own, remember the words of Jesus? And tomorrow is uncertain, when the future is ambiguous, how can you have rest and joy and be the kind of person who is generous on both sides of the fence when things are going well and things aren't in any and in every situation? And that's what Jesus shows us here in Matthew chapter six. Three things that we see in our text this morning. First, the command of Jesus, Christ's command. He shows us something about our position And then finally, he shows us something about God, his Father, and our Father's provision. That's what we're going to see as we move through Matthew chapter 6. Again, it's page 811 in your Bible. First, Christ's command. Now, uh, Jesus begins this teaching in this section of the Sermon on the Mount with a very important word. If you have your Bible open and if you're looking with me at verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, the first word of verse 25 in Matthew chapter 6 is what? Go ahead, out loud. Therefore, that's a very important word. What is therefore? Therefore. That's a pastor joke. Uh, Because right before this, Jesus has just taught his disciples not simply about money, but he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
All right, we could expand that. We could put a couple things in that same bucket and say not just where your treasure is, your heart will be also. We could say where your time is, there your heart will be also. And where your mind wanders, there your heart will be also. And where your energy goes, there your heart will be also. What you worry about shows us something about what captures the attention of your heart. And so three times in this text, Jesus will command us not to worry. The first of those is in verse 25. Let's take a look. Jesus says this. Therefore, because of all this I've already said, here's what follows next. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is life not more than food and the body more than clothing. Okay, flip to the next page. Two more times, Jesus commands us not to worry. Look at verse 31. It says, therefore, do not be anxious. Look at verse 34. Verse 25, verse 31, verse 34. Jesus says, therefore, because of all of this that I've already said right before this, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And the things that Jesus is commanding us three times here in this short number of verses not to be worried about our basic human needs. Food and clothing In the first century, life was day-to-day, far more than it is now. You can't store your leftovers in the fridge back then. You can't go to Costco for one thing and come home with 10 things. You know, enough toilet paper and enough paper towels to last you the next 10 months. Life was day-to-day. So the things that Jesus names here might be different than the things that might make us anxious in our day. Because in South Denver, In the 21st century, for most of us, what we wear, what we eat, those aren't big things. I have to tell you that reading through this text over the course of these last few days has caused me to ask a very important question. And the question is this, what else makes me anxious? I don't only mean anxious in the narrow sense about worry. I mean anxious in the broad sense. Have you asked yourself that question lately? What captures the attention of my heart? The people that frustrate me? And the imaginary conversations that I have with them in my head? That don't do any good? I have to kind of catch myself and say, okay, stop. The place where my heart wanders when I'm laying in bed. And the list of projects that I know I need to get to. And the parts of myself that I don't like about me, that maybe people can see and maybe they can't. And the way that I sometimes catch myself comparing who I am and what I have to other people. And the things that I wish I could go back and change, but I can't. And the things about my future that are uncertain, some of those things I have control over, and a lot of those things I don't. I'm reading a book right now called 
managing leadership anxiety, yours and theirs. And the author, Steve Cuss, says this about anxiety. Take a look. He says, anxiety, this is the opening words of the second chapter. Anxiety is a warning sign that something is getting in the way of your well-being. He goes on to say, after that, I believe that leadership anxiety, we could say human anxiety, I believe that human anxiety is generated in any particular moment when we think we need something that we don't actually need. Finally, anxiety shrinks the power of the gospel because it presents a false gospel, one of self-reliance rather than reliance on God. A false gospel that presents one of self-reliance rather than reliance on God. Let me say this, not once but twice. Not all worry is a sin. Not all worry is a sin. And some is. Because the problem isn't simply out there in our circumstances. The problem isn't here. Because to some degree, worry is saying to God, God, I don't think you're in charge here. And I don't think you can handle this. And I think it would be better if these things were in my hands. So thank you for all, your, all you've done so far, but I'll take it from here. And Jesus says that worry isn't practical, doesn't add anything to your life, doesn't make it any better, doesn't extend it anymore. And to some degree, we should stop. Three times, you remember? Three times Jesus tells us to stop worrying. What do we do with that? Not simply to stop, but to turn to God in repentance and to say, I'm sorry Forgive me, I need your grace. I'm turning what I've had under my control back to what's already been in your control all along. Stop. Now, let's pause right there. Simply stopping is the beginning. Imagine that you're talking to a friend of yours who you care about, and they care about you, and you've had just a very difficult time recently, and you're venting, and you're trying to process what you've been experiencing with them, and you get done, you get it off your chest, and it's their turn to talk, and they say back to you, it's going to be okay. I think you should just stop worrying. (laughs) Is it helpful? No. Why? Because simply stopping is just the start. It will get you started, but it won't get you home. And if you notice here, Jesus doesn't stop with his command, he has more to say. Because simply stopping is only working on the outside, it's only working on our will. There's more work to be done on the surface, on the inside. So from Christ's command, Jesus shows us something. He keeps going to show us about something about our position. If you got your Bible, let's keep reading verse 26. Jesus says this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in a barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the key. Are you not of more value than they. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Again, it's not 
any good? Is it not practical? Does it make your life any longer or any better? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Anybody cutting their grass this weekend? You know what happens to the clippings? You know, you mulch them or you compost them, you throw them in your trash. They're of no value, no worth. Jesus says this, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Let's pause right there. You notice something important here, that Jesus invites us to compare ourselves? And our natural tendency is to do so, and usually the direction our heart moves is to compare ourselves to people who have more than we do. I mean, you're scrolling through your phone, you're driving through the neighborhood, of your friend, there's always someone with more than you who's on a fancier vacation, who seems to be, at least according to the pictures, in a better mood and happier than you are, who has a nicer house and a newer car. I mean, there's always someone with more. We have to will ourselves to compare what we have to people who have less than we do, whose circumstances aren't as good as our circumstances. You ever done this? Say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so because that's really hard for them, or at least, you know, things could always be worse. That's always true, just as well as it is that people always have more than what you do. Uh, there's a woman who's a member of our congregation. He's your, she's your sister in Christ, uh, and she lives uh, in a, one of the two nursing homes that are between here and Orchard. Just, you know, she's essentially our neighbor. Uh, and she gave me permission to share this with you about her. I tell you, she is the happiest, most joyful person I know in the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, she has a wound on her leg that hasn't healed in years. Uh, her health is not great. Uh, all of that is part of why she can't have a roommate. Uh, just recently, her mom, who was a resident in the same nursing home, passed away very quickly, and then her sister passed away very suddenly. I mean, if it wasn't for her brother-in-law, who lives nearby, and her son, who just moved to town, she'd have nobody. Uh, she watches uh, us on an iPad, uh, so... And her life is really, really hard. And every time I go to visit her, she's just so full of joy and happy to be who she is. And I just want to tell you, Stephanie, if you're watching this morning, I admire you so much. The natural tendency of our heart is to compare ourselves to people who have more than we do. But we have to force ourselves to be grateful and compare ourselves to people whose lives may not be good as we do. And if you notice, Jesus is inviting us to compare ourselves, but not to look at our possessions, but to look at our position. He says, look at the birds of the air. I mean, imagine a bird. Does a bird wake up in the morning and wonder where it's going to eat later that day? Uh, does a flower, you know, wake up in the morning and say, oh man, I forgot to do my laundry today, what am I going to wear? Uh, does it have to go then to the factory and work and labor at the spindle? You know, and if, uh, look, I've seen Sleeping Beauty. If there's anything I know about spindles, I know that you should not touch them because they're dangerous. <laughs> no, of course. It's silly. And that's the point Jesus is making here. He says, 
Look not at your possessions, look at your position. Do you see your value? Not in their eyes, not in your eyes, but in my eyes. I made you in my image. And I formed you in your mother's womb. And you are beautiful in my eyes. And you are strong in your weakness. And you have enough. And you are enough. Because you are mine. And in my eyes, you are of greater value than anything else in all of creation. He invites you, Jesus does, to rest in your position. We have his command. He shows us our position. And then he points finally in our text to God, his Father, and our Father's provision. Let's keep reading verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Look, we could spend 20 minutes of a sermon just on the end of that verse, that your Father knows everything you need. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now on the surface, this sounds a bit like a bargain that God is making with us, sort of like an if-then statement, that if you put God first, he'll bless you. Uh, If you start your day at the beginning of your day and, you know, read your Bible and pray, you know, then you'll be more peaceful and the rest of your day will go better. And if you live your life the right way, the righteous way, and are a better version of yourself today than you were yesterday, that God will bless you. That's not Christianity at all, by the way, that's religion. Seek first here. Uh, The word first in Greek is not a matter of order, of sequence. Here, the word first is a matter of priority, of totality. And I can remember many years ago when a person who I still admire, a, a mentor in my life who I'm still connected to, gave me some bad advice. It was good advice, and it was bad advice. She said to me, look, Nate, I think that if you give up that thing to God, and if you really give it up, he'll put it back in your life. Now, here's the good part about that. Then we'll get to the bad part. The good part of that is that I needed to give it up. It was something that had captured far more than the intention the attention of my heart. It's something that I had made an idol, and believe me, there are still plenty of idols that are popping up in my heart all the time. I needed to repent of that particular thing. And I did need to give it up, but not so that God would reward me. That's the good part of what she told me. Here's the bad part of what she told me. I don't think it's a bargain. And at the time, for a while, I was only giving it up in order to give it back, and I wasn't giving it up for him, I was giving it up for me. 
If you note here, the command of Jesus is to seek first his kingdom, not yours. His righteousness, not yours. Not in being a better version of yourself, but by his grace, resting in the you that you already are. And Jesus says that the result of that kind of seeking is that it reorients the things that capture your heart, that it changes you, that he, through his spirit, changes you slowly and perceptibly over time from self-reliance to reliance on God. He's saying this is life in my kingdom under my provision. I know everything you need. I've got it under control. Even when it may seem like I don't. We have his command. He shows us our position and he invites us to receive his provision. One, two, and three. What does it look like finally to seek him? I love this promise of Jeremiah chapter 29. It says this, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's a matter of priority. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful outcome, a beautiful result. But, but how do we seek him? What does that look like practically in our lives today? I want to invite you to turn because Paul gives us a prescription. Go to Philippians chapter four. We're going to end here this morning. It's page 982. We see three things very quickly I want to run through before we close. I want to start in verse 5. At the end of the verse, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. What's that mean? That God's kingdom is here. My ruling and reigning in this broken world is already underway. I am the king. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's the result of that? This isn't just a non sequitur. and something that he adds to the list in verse 7. It says, this is the result, and because of that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Number one is prayer. Not just when you're stressed, not just after you've tried everything yourself, invented to the people around you, now I'm going to turn to God. I think we start praying way too late. Because we're way too self-reliant. Prayer, number one, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. From prayer to priorities, look at what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what's the next word? Out loud together, think about these things. He appeals to our thinking. He's inviting us to reprioritize the things that capture our hearts. When our heads start spinning in the middle of the night and we begin to have imaginary conversations with invisible people that don't do any good, will you put the best construction on them in the situation or the worst? Will you continue to focus on the things that make you anxious and the things that you think that you need? Or will you remember your position 
more valuable than anything else in all the creation, will you rest in his provision? The choice about what to think about, what to prioritize is yours. Prayer, priorities, finally, people. Verse 9, right after this, look what he says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen, who? In everybody, me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What's Paul saying here? Uh, Elsewhere in the epistles, the letters to the churches, he says, imitate me. You imitate me as I imitate Christ. Who are the people who are in your life who have, we say this a lot around here at Our Father, a life that's worth imitating? Not a perfect life, but a life where you see the life of Jesus. Who shows you the character of Jesus? Who do you want to be more like? Maybe it's time to make some space and to spend some time over coffee, over lunch, and learn and hear and see and put into practice what's worth imitating. Paul says, therefore, prayer, priorities, people, Jump to verse 11. Therefore, what results from this kind of life? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Does that magically appear, poof, out of the air for you? Just pray for contentment. No, Paul says, practice these things. And that gives you the power, verse 13, to do all things. Prayer. Priorities, people. Maybe it's not such a secret after all. The peace of God, the joy of Jesus, contentment in any and every situation in Jesus can be yours today. In the name of Jesus, crucified and risen for you and for me, amen.